Standing just 30 miles from Russia's border, with a pre-war population of about 1.5 million people, is Ukraine's second largest city, Kharkiv. And right now, it's under assault. It was one of the first cities attacked when Russia invaded in February, and the shelling has just not let up. And yet, life goes on. In fact, earlier this month, a Kharkiv resident named Maria Avdiva, who has been working to document Russian war crimes in the city, came across something striking, an image of hope. A bride and groom had just been married in a ceremony held in an underground subway station. They then ventured above ground and posed for photos amidst the rubble of a destroyed building. The images quickly went viral. Before becoming newlyweds, Anton and Anastasia had been volunteering at a local humanitarian aid center, helping residents who had been hurt in the shelling. But Maria says the reality of this war quickly caught up with the couple. In the recent attacks, Anton was wounded, and now he's in the hospital. But still, uh, the center continues its work, and uh, Anastasia is working there. So both of them, as other people staying in Kharkiv, are real heroes. While in Kharkiv, CNN chief international correspondent Clarissa Ward has been spotlighting humanitarian and emergency workers like Anton and Anastasia, who have risked their lives to help those who have stayed behind. In today's episode, we talk about what she has seen, the brutality of the current Russian offensive, and what comes next for everyday Ukrainians. From CNN, this is Tug of War. I'm David Ryan. Clarissa, great to talk to you. Thanks for chatting, David. It's nice to talk to you. So you've been on back in Ukraine on the ground for a few weeks now, all over the place. Uh, where are you right now? I just arrived in Kyiv. I've been in Kharkiv, Dnipro, uh, Slovyansk, Avdivka, yeah, uh, all over basically eastern Ukraine and, and the northeast. And before that, I was in Chernigiv to the north of Kyiv. So... We've we've covered a lot of ground this trip. Yeah. And what struck you most about this time back in the places that you've seen? I think what struck me most is that the war has changed completely. After Russian forces were forced to withdraw from the north and give up any attempt to take Kiev, they have now focused their efforts in the east. And the type of warfare that you see in the East is very different from what we saw that was taking place here earlier on in and around the capital. Earlier, Ukrainian forces were using sort of almost guerrilla-type tactics, ambushes. Now you're talking about huge swaths of territory, very flat, very little cover, a lot of tanks, long-range artillery. And so it's just a, a, a dramatically different pace and type of warfare. Mm. So you mentioned you were in Kharkiv. What kind of destruction is that city experiencing right now? So Kharkiv has basically been shelled pretty much relentlessly since nearly nine weeks now. Wow. Have been hit. Look at this. This was once a palatial grand staircase, now completely destroyed. And the destruction is 
very, very intense, uh, particularly in certain parts of the city. There were also government buildings, a university that were taken out with cruise missiles. An entire car has literally been thrown into an office by the force of that blast. And, and this is Ukraine's second largest city. It's a hub of 1.5 million people with a, well, used to be thriving um, community of like LGBTQ, lots of young people, lots of tech people. Hmm. Now there are still people living there, uh, which is extraordinary in and of itself, but it's a very subdued city. It's a very quiet city. There's a strict curfew in place. You hear the sound of bombardment throughout most nights, and you have the sense that, you know, Ukrainian forces are fighting really hard to make sure that the Russian military, as it's going about this new offensive in the east, doesn't try to do something similar to what we saw in Mariupol to try to encircle the city. Hmm. At the moment, I, it genuinely doesn't look like the Russians would have such grand ambitions anyway. Um, but that's the fear of a lot of residents. Because they have been under this relentless bombardment, they do worry that they could end up in a similar situation to that city. Yeah. What's the aim here for Russia in terms of just bombing Kharkiv so relentlessly? Why this place? Well, originally, they were trying to make a real play for it and trying to push in to Kharkiv. And they were very quickly pushed back uh, and took a lot of losses. But now it's really all taking place in the northeastern outskirts of the city. Because if you think of Russia as being about 30 miles to the sort of northeast of Kharkiv, that's a crucial supply line for the Russians. They're bringing weaponry down there. They're bringing troops down there, and they need to keep that open. So they need to try to neutralize any potential counteroffensives from Ukrainian forces. And it's important to stress to our listeners, when we were hearing this bombardment day in and day out, it's not only incoming. It's a lot of outgoing, too, as Ukrainian forces are fighting back and trying to cut off Russian supply lines. There's a city um, a little south, about two hours south of Kharkiv, called Izium, which the Russians recently took over, which is a hugely important city strategically. And the fear is that, you know, they're pushing down from the north, up from the south, trying to also move in from the east and completely encircle Ukrainian forces who are in that Donbass region. So Kharkiv is important for a lot of reasons. And you mentioned the people that are still there in the city. Do you get a sense of why they stayed behind and, and how they're feeling about all this? What are they telling you? So partly I think it's the spirit of the city. There is definitely a natural pride, defiance, and resilience in the people of Kharkiv. And the mayor himself has not really told people to evacuate. Mm. Um, when you walk around, it's surreal because you'll see these completely demolished buildings, but then you'll also see fresh tulips that have been planted. And it's this sort of dramatic juxtaposition of, on the one hand, being the victim of this endless series of strikes, and then on the other hand, still having that pride, still having that sense of civic pride. 
And when you talk to people, particularly older people, there's two arguments you'll hear. Number one, this is my home and why should I leave it? And then number two, in some cases, where else would I go? How would I afford to go there? Where would I stay? Who would look after me? So I think it's a combination. So you can see this is what's left of the bedroom here. We went to an area that is basically completely empty. It was heavily bombarded in March when Russian forces were trying to push into the city. And we arrived at this apartment building. The whole front of the apartment building had been sheared off. And you just see, looking into people's rooms, their bedrooms, their kitchens, but there's no wall there. And you're thinking to yourself, who on earth could possibly live in a place like this? And then we see out of the corner of our eye, two entrances down, an elderly woman standing there. Larisa Kremina, her name is. So she's saying that she does have a sister who she could stay with, but she also lives in an area that's being heavily hit and she's living in a shelter at the moment. And she's 73 years old. And the first thing I noticed about her when I was talking to her was that she had lipstick on and she had obviously made herself up. And I asked her about it. And for me, it was this really beautiful moment because in spite of such intense suffering and danger and just the exhaustion and the grind that comes with trying to continue your daily life in the face of such a ruthless enemy, here was this elderly woman still making a point about taking pride in her appearance, about looking nice. Um, It's a sort of small act of resistance that I found very moving. But having traveled around a lot of this country, I really would say that Kharkiv is is pretty unique in terms of that intensity of that resilience and that defiance. Hmm. I think something people back here in the U.S. and elsewhere don't necessarily catch on right away when they think of a war going on is all the other services that still need to kind of operate in the city, whether it's stores or banks or doctors. And of course, part of that is emergency services and paramedics. What kind of role have they taken on in a city like Kharkiv as this bombing campaign plays out? Well, you know, they have one of the most demanding, difficult and dangerous jobs there is at the moment, because not only are they responding still to all the regular needs of daily life, people having heart attacks or getting into a traffic accident, but they're also responding to the people who are being badly injured in the course of this bombardment. And they're doing it in certain parts of the city under constant bombardment. So they've said that they've got reports one person at least has been injured in the shelling and they're hearing some rockets as well. So we're going to see what's going on. So we spent a day with a pair of paramedics in an area called Saltivka, which is on the northeastern outskirts. It's uh, probably the heaviest hit area of Kharkiv. And as they went out, we heard a flurry of rockets going off. One of the ambulance workers told us this is incoming now. And the two paramedics who we were following, Alexandra and Vladimir, got in their ambulance There's one helmet for a team of three. They put their flak jackets on, they roll out, and they had received a report that one person had been wounded. 
And as we arrived at the scene, it's a residential apartment building, no signs of anything military um, in that area. Although obviously I wasn't able to scour the area, but I certainly didn't see any military presence. And as we walked into the door behind Vladimir, you saw this elderly woman standing at the front window of her apartment, just trying to sweep out the glass from the windowsill, which again goes to show you there are people living in these areas. And Vladimir, when he's going in there, he's walking fast at a, at a fast pace because they know they need to move very quickly. They don't have a lot of time on the ground. And they're very conscious of a tactic that Russia has been implementing increasingly in Ukraine that we saw used a lot in Syria called the double tap, whereby you hit a target, you allow a bit of time to pass, rescue workers arrive on the scene, and then you hit the same target again, Oof. which is a very cynical... It's like a fake out. Yeah. I mean, it, it's not so much a fake out, though, because you're actually hurting and often killing people in the first round as well. Sure. But to maximize the number of casualties, to maximize the horror, you then come back again and hit the same place. And literally, as we walked in the door, we heard another shell coming in. Moments later, another volley of rockets. Everyone scrambled to take cover under a stairwell. And the noise, the sound, and the vibration, the building literally shaking as this hail of rockets landed in and around uh, the area we were in. You know, some of them as close as 10 yards away. It was the next door entrance. Okay, so we were just in an apartment building. Uh, they were looking for an injured man. A bunch of rounds came in and hit the next door building. So now we are getting out as fast as we can. It's just extraordinary. I mean, I've been covering war for a very long time in a lot of places and I've, I've never I've never been that close to uh, artillery as it's landing and it's mm. it's desperately frightening it's obviously incredibly dangerous and just gives you a feel for the extraordinary courage of these paramedics who while we were very quickly working out how to extract ourselves from that situation they were still absolutely focused on trying to find where this wounded man was, going to get him, taking him out to safety, taking him to a hospital and ultimately saving his life. And what do your parents say? What does your family say? Aren't they wanting you to stop this work? <laughs> no comments. <laughs> no comments. It's very difficult. Uh, they must be scared. Uh, yes, yes. Proud, but scared. Uh, call uh, all day, all night. And it goes against human nature. Human nature in that situation tells you, get out, leave this place. It's not safe. It takes real courage to push that fear away and keep trying to find the wounded person. More of my conversation with Clarissa Ward after the break. 
we all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, during Sleep Number's President's Day sale, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed plus special financing for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. See store for details. So I guess what is the the cynical nature of the the double tap as as you say and some of these places like schools and other soft targets like that being hit in Kharkiv what does that tell us about how Russia is approaching this war and, and how this could you know play out in the coming weeks and months well it tells you there's a flagrant disregard for civilian life and if you look at the new general or the recently appointed general uh, Alexander Dvornikov, who is known or nicknamed the Butcher of Syria, I think it also potentially tells you that it's not just a flagrant disregard for civilian life. It's actually an active attempt to try to snuff out any hope for the possibility of normalcy in these places. And we saw this a lot in Syria. Mm. Why do you bomb schools and hospitals and markets? You do it to bring a people to their knees. You do it to make it clear that they don't have a choice in this situation, that they don't have agency, that as long as they refuse to submit, they will be punished and there will never be a chance for them to have a normal life. Um, that's what we saw play out in Aleppo in, in really dramatic and horrific fashion. So it looks like this was some kind of a dormitory. You can see children's beds here all around. And I do think there are alarming signs that we've seen in Mariupol and in cases in Kharkiv as well. And what's so striking when you look around is that it's so clearly not a military target. This is a residential neighborhood. It appears that some of those same tactics are being repurposed. And then on the flip side, you know, CNN has reported on kind of a, this new strategy from the Biden administration is to beat Russia so badly on the battlefield that it's deterred from launching attacks, invasions like this in other places in the future. Does that seem at all realistic to you based on Russia's past and, and recent history? Well, I think there's two ways of looking at it. On the one hand, you could understand the logic of trying to basically slowly bleed Russia out, exhaust them, um, bankrupt them. And you can make the argument that that would be a deterrent from uh, engaging in this kind of illegal uh, invasion in the future. There's another school of thought that will say well, you're also painting them into the corner, right? And mm. that you are making it more likely that they might take drastic actions and see more of this um, sort of indiscriminate bombing, the style that we saw in Grozny and Aleppo. There's been a lot of speculation about whether they would ever use tactical nukes or chemical weapons. Mm. But what is so tricky in all of this is that at the end of the day, it comes down to one man, and I don't think anybody um, 
you know, arguably very few even in Russia, but certainly not outside, really understand how far he's willing to go, what will act as an effective deterrent, and what will just be like waving a red flag at a bull. There's so much in terms of this war that is becoming unfortunately commonplace for people there. Is there a sense that you have that there's fatigue set in, or is really that that spirit of the early days of Ukrainians fighting back and staging protests against tanks coming down the street? Are you still seeing that kind of stuff there? I think you are still seeing it, which is pretty extraordinary when you think, as you mentioned, how long this has been going on and, and, and what a huge toll it's taken and how dramatically people's lives have changed in a matter of months. I think it's extraordinary as well when I just see people now flooding back into Kiev, restaurants reopening. Mm. Ukrainians are determined to hold on to their country and to build it back when when the time comes. I have not come across any sort of instances where I have felt that this is a nation that is starting to buckle under the pressure. They understand that the sacrifice will be great, that many more people will die, that many more towns may well be destroyed. But there is a sense of urgency and steadfastness in their approach, whereby giving up is just simply not an option. They will keep fighting until they win. And they know that they can't win without a lot of support. They're not um, wearing rose-colored glasses in that sense. But with or without that support, they're just going to keep fighting. Clarissa, thanks for being here. It's great catching up with you. Stay safe. Thanks so much, David. That's it for us today. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back next Wednesday with more Tug of War. And for real-time updates on the conflict, you can check out CNN Five Things wherever you listen. Tug of War is a production of CNN Audio. This episode was produced by me, David Rind, along with Audrey Horwitz, Nathan Miller, and Paula Ortiz. Felicia Patinkin is the senior producer, and Megan Marcus is the executive producer. Special thanks to Ashley Lusk and Elizabeth Roberts. I'll talk to you next time. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life, I sit down with Giles Yeo. It is a problem of our brain influencing the hunger. So hunger is a brain scenario, even though the feeling of hunger comes from your stomach. It's a very new and provocative way of thinking about a condition that impacts more than 40% of Americans. But the thing is, this approach could have big consequences for the way that we treat obesity. Listen to Chasing Life, wherever you get your podcasts. This week on The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Kara Swisher and I spoke before a live audience of students and professors at the Sign Institute of Policy and Politics at American University. The former tech reporter for The Wall Street Journal is on a massive book tour. Her memoir is titled Burn Book, A Tech Love Story. It's not the tech that's the problem. It's the people manipulating the tech. So I guess you could say I'm an activist. I'm an activist for unaccountable power, not being unaccountable. 
Listen to the assignment with Audie Cornish on Spotify.